This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. This episode will mark the final interview for this podcast as I bring Voices of COVID-19 to a close after more than a year and a half and 25 episodes. And I could think of no better guest to wrap up the podcast than Dr. Vin Gupta. If you're like me, Dr. Gupta became a welcome voice into your household over the last 18 months. Serving as a medical analyst for MSNBC and NBC, he stepped up as the pandemic started to spread to provide perspective that was urgent and rational, clear-eyed but nuanced, plain-spoken but still empathetic to the confusion and fear that was gripping our nation. Dr. Gupta is a practicing pulmonologist and critical care physician and an affiliate assistant professor of health metric sciences at the University of Washington. He also has a military background as a major in the Air Force Reserve Medical Corps. His leadership continues as he speaks out on the importance of vaccination as we look to finally turn the corner and bring the pandemic under control. With that, it is my sincere pleasure to welcome Dr. Vin Gupta. Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for joining me today. Brian, thanks for having me. So my first question is, if you can think back to early 2020, when word of the pandemic was first starting, I think a lot of people were maybe a little bit skeptical because we've had pandemics in the past that never really turned into a global situation like this. Was there a moment in time when you knew, hey, we're in for something very significant here, and it's time for everybody to sort of wake up to this reality? You know, looking back, it's, I think it's easier for me to fall victim to, to some Monday morning quarterbacking here, Brian. So I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that headspace of early 2020 and just the unknown. What we were seeing happening in Wuhan, and what ultimately was a a fairly effective quarantining of the city. And so it felt like because of the swift response and what seemed like transparency up front, that you know maybe we could get a handle on this. And especially per, per what you just noted, in the last decade, we've had four epidemics of pandemic potential, whether it's MERS, H1N1, Zika, Ebola. And so it was hard to, to say up front, well, gosh, something might be different here. But I'd say the first time it did feel like that this was a different threat and, and that this could be a pandemic uh, of worldwide significance was was when Italy really started going into a pretty catastrophic lockdown where their ICUs and, and what is otherwise a really affluent part of the country in Lombardy, where their ICUs started to get really overcrowded uh, where basic necessities in a place like Italy were lacking. I think that's when all of us said, well, gosh, this is happening in China. Now it's happening in Italy. We have two really serious data points. And clearly there's human-to-human transmission of a virus that two months prior, there was, uh, that was an open question. So that combination, sort of mid-February, once we saw what was happening in Italy, I think that was the watershed moment for me where clearly this was a fast-moving virus. Clearly, it was causing very serious critical illness, and it had the potential to to swamp health systems quickly. That was alarming, and, and you know, frankly, in our my lifetime and most of our lifetimes, we just haven't seen that. And so that that was the watershed moment. Do you remember the first time that you encountered and saw firsthand how different and devastating COVID can be? You know, it was mid March in Seattle. I just 
by quirk of fate was the initial epicenter of uh, of COVID here in the U.S. before New York quickly overtook it. And I remember it was in the middle of March of 2020. We had just gotten back from a vacation, actually, my wife and I with two of our medical colleagues who live in Boston. Uh, we were in uh, in Mexico and, and felt like, at that moment at least, like, okay, well, maybe we can still go. And it was right before the world was sort of shutting down. That next week, I, I entered into an ICU that was packed with COVID critically ill patients and you know, what, what felt different was we were doing things that we typically don't do in critical illness, especially if somebody has a really terrible pneumonia. We were putting patients on their back and then on their belly, proning, supinating them while, while they're on a ventilator for, for many hours, extending out for many days. And that was just emblematic to me that we were learning as we were going. We were trying to figure different strategies out in real time. There was no standardization of care because we were learning from, literally learning from colleagues in Italy who were able to to give us pearls of wisdom. And then we were then passing that on to our colleagues in New York City. So, I mean, what was happening in real time when you look back on it was extraordinary. And I would say now we've taken those key learnings. There's still not standardization. I mean, even to this day, on how one hospital may care for COVID critically ill patients versus another. But that was the moment in mid-March of 2020 when you confronted head on, you're going into a, a patient's room that's on a ventilator with COVID. You're not wearing an N95 because at that moment, if you remember, that's when it was discovered that we didn't have a stockpile of N95 masks. So the CDC at that moment told healthcare providers like myself, you don't need to wear an N95 when you're in the room of a critically ill COVID patient on a ventilator. I mean, imagine getting that guidance now, but that was, you know, I have a picture actually of me entering the room, you know, it was like I was caring for just any regular patient. And it it was just, so I, I think that combination of confusion, the fear of the unknown and us really flying by the seat of our pants was characterized just the state of the pandemic and what critical care looked like. And those are really months. In your multiple roles, you also took on an, as sort of a national voice of sort of reason and warning and trying to advance science at a time when science wasn't always leading the discussion. What drove you to really embrace that role? Because there were times when I saw you on television and I, and I could tell that you were exhausted from your patient responsibilities, but here you were stepping up and taking on these questions. What drove you to do that and add that responsibility into the mix during this time? When you phrase it like that, I, I haven't really reflected on it in that way. And, and I appreciate the question. And the public facing role was something that years before COVID I had done intermittently on the behalf of organizations I worked for. And so I was used to it to some degree, uh, but speaking truth to power and feeling a void that was huge when it came to public trust and communication in a health crisis. In some ways, what helped me was this overarching confidence that I knew what I was talking about, that in a space where there's a lot of faux experts or people that are just for political reasons putting out nonsense, I felt confident and and I leaned in and I felt like what I was saying was authentic because I was living it. 
not just as a practicing pulmonologist, but that was that was huge. And I think that was helpful for earning the credibility of somebody on the opposite side of the screen. But then it was also, you know, coming from a military background, working on pandemic response when nobody was thinking about pandemic response, you know, in the years prior. And that combination gave me confidence that I could go toe to toe with the U.S. Surgeon General at the time, who I thought was not doing his job. And that, um, if anything, uh, they were on my turf when it came to expertise. And I think you need that when you're speaking to the masses at a time of crisis that's you know unprecedented. I, I won't name names here, but I, I sometimes see individuals stepping out of their areas of expertise, speculating or not saying things strong enough. And I think part of that is because they recognize it. They, you know, I know what I'm not an expert in, and I shouldn't be talking about certain issues. And the American people deserve to hear from experts on those specific topics. But when it came to COVID, when it came to protecting yourself, I, you know, I felt that I had a responsibility to inform people, but to also push the envelope to speak confidently. And, and I think that's what people needed at that moment. One of the things that's, that shocked me and maybe disappointed me was, you know, when you're faced with a huge crisis, it seems like you can either come together or you can separate. And while there were a lot of people and individuals and, and organizations that came together and tried to help, the division in this country was extremely disappointing. How did you feel about stepping into that discussion when things were getting heated and not reality-based in a lot of areas and the emotions were running so high? Were you comfortable just kind of inserting yourself into that discussion or were you concerned about it? Most people that go into medicine and public health don't expect to be the subject of, of critical scrutiny and the subject of attacks from people that are in the political arena. As an example, for example, you know, Tucker Carlson has taken a habit of coming at me in, in different forms or trying to distort what I'm putting out there to just frankly, just misinform and lie to people. And you don't get prepared for that in medical school. Nobody teaches you how to do, how to deal with it. And yet, once you experience it, one, and in my case, I have a, a series of trusted advisors across media and healthcare, Sanjay Gupta, for example, who's been a big brother to me and others, I've, you know, I sought support and counsel and was able to learn as I went. But no, it was, it was an extremely uncomfortable time. I remember after I got my first vaccine of Pfizer back in the middle of December, I had gone on air uh, with Chuck Todd and Meet the Press and had just said that for the foreseeable future until directed otherwise by Dr. Fauci, I will continue to be vigilant, mask and distance even after I'm fully vaccinated, because if you remember at the time, that's we didn't know that that it was safe to do otherwise. And and yet, Ted Cruz and and Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, sort of in succession, distorted what I said to suggest that I was just trying to control people's lives. And at that time, you know, when you're getting your inbox overflowing with hate mail and, and likewise on Twitter, it, it no one likes that. Uh, even if you're used to it, no one likes that. And so. It's recognizing that there's purpose, that that you have a clear North Star, that you have clarity on that, and that you're staying authentic and, and speaking on areas of where you're an expert. That was my center of gravity. And and, and I stuck with that. And, and I think that's where there's been some resonance, where I often got told, if you're not upsetting somebody, that means you're not really having any traction or resonance. And, and so I, I've taken it as a badge of honor to some degree that, you know, these 
individuals who I think are not helping anybody and only causing confusion have come after me. It had to be hard to keep your cool when in your day job, you're dealing with true moments of human drama. And then you would see people saying masking is a form of control or the vaccine is has a computer chip in it. How do you balance those? I mean, the true emotion of your job and, and yeah. looking patients and, and families in the eye and then walking out and, and hearing the distortion. How do you keep your your sense of cool about that? I mean, it, it was hard and privately and privately it's been tough. I mean, being at this still to this day for 17, 18 months, you know, week over week, in some cases at the height of the misinformation epidemic, I mean, there's multiple national TV spots just in a day and it became grueling. And I felt like my responsibility here was to try to reach as many people as possible and not just to reach those who I knew would reflexively agree with me. Which is hard because, you know, in general, 80% of the time I would go on MSNBC and the other 20% um, NBC or some other platform playing on, on home field to some degree. But it was, it was really difficult. And, uh, I, and yet I try not to get defensive in the public domain. And I try to keep my cool. And because I think people respond to measured analysis. I think showing alarm and emotion strategically when appropriate, you know, I wouldn't shy away from that. And I would always just do what felt right in the moment. I would, I would never try to be uh, scripted. I didn't make it a habit to pick fights or to respond to silliness all the time because you're not going to reach everybody. I mean, there's always going to be people that disagree with you, but if you can reach 60, 65, maybe 70% and they, they can trust you and trust that what comes out of your mouth is not towards fulfilling some sort of political objective, but it's simply to keep people safe, then I think that's the best you can hope for. And, that, and that's really what I tried to do. I remember for a while you were using images of lungs to show a contrast between COVID lungs and, and healthy lungs. And I think that one of the statements that I heard you make was the vaccine will prevent you from getting these lungs. It was very clear. And again, you, you were using storytelling in a way to help people get past maybe some buzzwords that they had and understand that these are real consequences. I think that's the long and the short of it, that people are tired of docs like myself or scientists going on mat these platforms and yammering away about percentages and, well, the science is unsettled or this, that, and the other. There's a tendency in medicine, especially where coming up the ranks, the more confusing or complicated you sound on medical rounds, you know, you're rewarded for that to some degree that, oh gosh, that person really knows what they're talking about. They read the latest study in the New England Journal, you know, gold star for that individual. But it's really hard to unlearn that way of communication. And the only reason I, you know, whatever measure of success I've had in the public domain has been informed by my non-clinical roles in life and my tra you know I, I trained in public policy I had a military background I've you know done other stuff and when you see that and you see the way in which other organizations or other really talented communicators or how they think about pub uh, public communication the art of communication it's it's almost the exact opposite of the way you're you're taught to speak as a doctor you know clearly now, the threat landscape has changed when it comes to what can 
impact our livelihoods, what can kill people, what can shut down the global economy. I mean, bio warfare and pandemics needs to be top of mind for every government in the world. But then you need people that can operate in that space to be effective crisis communicators and to put them up front. And ideally, the, the most credible people to, to help respond to these types of threats are individuals that are considered to be experts. And, and we just don't have a, a, a long bench of people in health that can do that the way other sectors do. Moving more to current state and the fact that, you know, we're, we're obviously rounding the corner. We're not there yet. There's still major issues around the, around the world. And we have still issues in this country with vaccination. Have you had to communicate differently? And I'm thinking particularly with the vaccinations. Like right now, if you're not vaccinated, maybe it's because you buy into conspiracy theories, or maybe it's because you have been misinformed. And there's this whole concept of the, you know, the generational trauma that is very justifiable in terms of mistrust in, in, in some communities, in particularly African-American communities. Are there some groups that you're just not going to reach? And then how do you maybe use empathy to reach those other groups that still sure. uh, maybe you can reach and maybe influence? For the longest time, I shied away from trying to scare people that were hesitant about getting the vaccine. And in part, we didn't really have to go down that road because there was a lot of vaccine scarcity in those initial months of the rollout. Scarcity is motivating, especially amongst a group of people, older, vulnerable populations that didn't need to be convinced to get the vaccine because they saw what was happening before their eyes and they felt vulnerable to the virus. Now we have a glut. Now we're trying to auction off vaccines through these lotteries, which I find so cringeworthy, and that more and more governors are adopting some form of it when the rest of the world is burning and doesn't need to participate in a lottery to, to get a life-saving vaccine. It's just, you know, I know it's a tangent, but it's just deeply troublesome to see that. But all of that aside, I do think pivoting as realities change and pivoting messaging has been is vital. You, know, you can't just have a scripted dialogue and continue to rehash that. And so I absolutely have pivoted how I approach talking to younger people, whether it's a, a member of the Seattle Seahawks or I've been doing sessions with T-Mobile staff or Amazon staff. I mean, just across kind of different parts of uh, our workforce in, in this country. And I no longer hesitate to lead with this virus is a different virus than the virus that existed in early 2020. And I, you know, I'll lead, I'll even lead with back in early 2020, I didn't think young people were that susceptible or uh, that the virus posed as much of a danger to young people. Now that's completely out the window to anybody that's unvaccinated. This is a different risk perception that everybody needs to clearly understand. And so I lean in heavily on that. And I think to not, to do otherwise would be a mistake. I think that COVID in some ways has shined a light on societal ills and problems that we have that maybe we didn't even understand how bad they were. To what extent are you confident that we're going to be better the next time we're faced with something like this? What are the warning signs that you're seeing? And do you think that we can pull it together and be ready next time? I'm not convinced that we're anywhere near prepared to contend with the next threat, the next pandemic. Because if you, if you really think about it, we haven't changed a lot about some of the underlying drivers of why COVID came about in the first place. You know, a lot of those drivers are things that are really 
difficult to contend with, especially in the midst of a crisis. Why are these things happening in the first place? Well, forced migration, climate change, causing people uh, to interact more with animals that could expose them to a virus that can flip from an animal to a human. I mean, there's been essentially zero progress on the actually the key underlying driver of of this type of illness. And, you know, whether or not this is a lab leak or, you know, I know that whole debate's being scavenged back up again. I think that's besides the point. I recognize some people really want the lab leak theory to work out for political reasons. But, you know, even if it was a lab leak, let's say, and I don't think it was a lab leak at all, it's not like this doesn't naturally occur anyway, that we haven't had multiple examples of epidemics of pandemic potential that have no source of a lab leak that could be catastrophic. So what do we do? Are we going to say, oh, well, you know, this is not something we have to worry about in the future? No, of course not. I do think that there's some reason for hope. You are seeing, at least in the United States, a move towards better preparedness if and when the next threat arises, you know, better testing available at home. Previously, we didn't really have any at-home tests for anything that was a communicable disease. Now we have a lot of different options that are pretty darn good, actually. I also think that expectations have been set that, you know what, masks work. And probably everybody has a mask that's pretty decent at this point, and we're building better masks as we speak. So if you think about just two basic things that we didn't have 18 months ago that we now have, to some degree, accepting of masks to some degree, again, not, that's not universal. And we have better surveillance capabilities in the states. And so if and when this does occur, I, I think it's a matter of time that we're going to be faced with a threat like this again. The response will be better because we went through this once before. And so it's not going to be completely foreign what we have to do. So hopefully the disruption will be minim- will, will be much less and we won't have to go through a year and a half of being shut down. You led right into this, but in terms of other areas for hope, I mean, I think that the speed with which we've developed new vaccine technologies is extremely encouraging. But also, I think that to some extent, there has been a reminder that we are all connected in some way, especially, hopefully, globally, and that we do appreciate the way that people stepped up and took care of each other. To me, I'm hoping that that lasts beyond that. I'm thinking in terms of things like, can the United States be a leader in helping vaccinate the world, things like that. Do you see any signs of hope that we actually will learn some lessons and remember maybe our greater good and our greater potential going forward? Or am I just being Pollyanna about that? Yeah, I, I certainly feel optimistic about where the next few years are headed um, in terms of the priorities of the Biden administration. Yeah, I have a lot of close friends in the administration helping to influence some of these policies. And so I think we've recognized it. We recognize we have a global duty. But it's not like the Obama administration didn't recognize it. They recognized it. They invested in the global health security agenda, put a billion dollars into it, and then it was summarily scrapped on the inauguration of, of President Trump. And so the risk here is that there's enough disruption to the global commons and this feeling of unity on these threats because People don't trust us or people don't think that our word is going to be good because they don't know what's going to happen in 2024. They may trust President Biden and his commitment to multilateralism, but, well, there's no guarantee President Biden is going to win re-election in 2024. And so to what degree do we really reinvest in a a global community of nations 
and trust America, knowing that things could rapidly change it again. I think that's the greatest risk here is insularity in our politics and this notion of America first. The postmortem here, and I'm sure there will be several postmortems about the pandemic once it's truly over. But if you want to look at why we currently, is, it will be exceeded by India at some point, but we currently still have the largest death toll from COVID. It's because of the ways in which pandemic response and preparedness were defanged in the initial two years of the Trump administration. The, the team at the NSC tasked with pandemic response was disbanded. Global health security agenda was completely scrapped. There was no engagement with WHO. I mean, when you're flat footed like that and you don't have any expertise in the administration, what do you expect is going to happen when Bob Woodward and the president are talking about an airborne virus and acknowledging that that exists in February of 2020, when you don't have any surrounding expertise and you have no goodwill uh, amongst uh, our larger community of nations, well, of course, we're going to experience more pain than we otherwise needed to if we had the right people in place and the right policies in place. So that's the concern here. I think there's hope in the near term, but you know, something like this dealing with pandemics is a long-term investment and needs a long-term horizon to really realize change and improvement. And so we need that long-term horizon perspective um, if we're going to get towards a safer, uh, more secure environment for all, you know, for not just us, but for all countries. I want to thank you for taking the time today. And I also just really want to thank you for, I think, being a ray of sanity over the last year and a half for a lot of us. I think that the role that you played and the the tenor that you took in explaining what was going on made a huge difference to a lot of people's lives. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining me today and talking about this. Brian, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And thank you for those kind words. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. This may be the final new interview for the podcast, but I will be releasing some compilation shows to revisit conversations that we've had. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and be considerate of each other. And we'll get through this together. 